Hey everyone, it's Cappy. I want to give you a quick heads up that the episode you're about to hear was recorded back in February at the Food Network and Cooking Channel South Beach Wine and Food Festival. It's no surprise that many things got thrown off this year, but we're excited to be able to share this episode with you. Features one of the most talented and passionate bakers in this country. With that, this is Beyond the Plate, a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Today's guest is Zach Stern. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Keurig. Keurig has a new limited edition love blend, a collection of three craft roasted blends co-created in collaboration with five local roasters across America. I did not plan on teasing this like so, but we have a really fun bonus episode coming up where I talk with each of these roasters responsible for the love blend. There's some really special people and I'm super excited for you all to hear that. So convenience aside with Keurig, this love blend is really great quality coffee. But if you do want a taste of these roasters and their businesses, check out the video at keurig.com backslash love blend. Also, this limited edition love blend, when you order it, proceeds from your purchase go back to support the five roasters that came together to create them. Talk about supporting local. These K-Cup pods are recyclable. Check locally as they are not recyclable in all communities. To learn more about the limited edition Keurig Love Blend and their five roasters, and to order product, Valentine's gifts coming up, coffee lovers, please visit keurig.com backslash loveblend and follow them on social media at Keurig. Keurig, we thank you. Today's guest is a baker, a craftsman, a business owner, and really an all-around great human. This was such an enjoyable conversation for me, learning really what goes on inside the mind of this guy. He has one of the best bakeries, definitely in Miami, if not the country, to be quite honest. We talk about things such as why he's chosen not to expand at a rate that he really could have easily chosen to do so. Zach's going to share his point of view on growth. We also talk about giving back as we always do and how and why he chooses to give back and why he chooses not really to talk about how he gives back. Both very interesting points here. This is an establishment that when chefs fly into Miami, one of their first stops is to Zach the Baker. Zach has won plenty of accolades. He has a line out the door nearly every weekend, but what keeps him most grounded throughout his journey, he says is his two little girls. So before we get going, we do have some awesome merch for you all, which you can find a link in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. We have some tees and hoodies and beanies and hats as well. Please enjoy this episode as we go Beyond the Plate with Zach Stern, aka Zach the Baker. Thanks for having me, man. No, thank you. I appreciate it. So we're here in your town, Miami, your city. I hate when people come to Chicago and they're like, oh, I like your town. I was like, Chicago is a city. I know you're from New York and all. It sounds so provincial. Yeah. <laughs> what do you love most about this city? What do I love most about Miami? I don't know. I'm, I'm born and raised in Miami. So I've got a lot of love, a lot of hate, a lot of, you know, a lot of emotion, a lot of experiences. It's, it's tough to boil it down. Uh, I think there there is a lot of beauty in Miami. I think it's emerging nature, right? It's youth is exciting, right? Like there's a lot of opportunity for people to come here if they have content, if they have talent. There's so much opportunity for them to flourish. And I think that's beautiful and exciting. But at the same time, it's it's youthfulness, right? The city can also be its uh, its challenges. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, I forgot to tell you this. We basically had a whole podcast episode before we I, we started recording. Mm-hmm. We have a mutual friend kind of family to me, Brian. And when Brian asked if I knew you a while ago, I was like, yeah, of course I know Zach. Like, I don't know him, but I know of Zach. And like, I don't take this literally right now. I'm like, I hate Zach. And he's like, why? He's the nicest guy ever. I was like, you want to know why? Because when I lived in Miami, there was no good bread. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, and then I moved out of Miami and all of a sudden he's like this master craftsman when it comes to bread. I wanted to let you know that. Cheers. Thanks, Uh, man. (laughs) That's sweet. (laughs) So according to Adina Sussman, a great cookbook uh, author and writer and, and cook and many other things, you are, and I quote, the man behind artisanal carbohydrates. 
Okay. All right. Thanks, Adina. <laughs> so here, I have a question. A lot of people fear carbs. Is that true? Do a lot of people fear carbs? I think so. Why do they get a bad rap? Why does bread get a bad rap? And is this frustrating at all? I didn't know that bread gets a bad rap. Is that a thing? This is perfect answer. <laughs> <laughs> does bread does bread get a bad rap? I mean, people who stay away from you know carbs, you obviously don't pay attention to that. Well, I, I think there's a lot of ideas about health and what is healthy and what is not healthy. And, but I think those things are transient. They're, they come, they go, right? I, I don't pay too much attention to it. I mean, I, nutrition is important, but I don't know. I'm, I guess I, I have such a deep relationship with food and specifically with bread that I'm, that I'm going to let this moment of to, to shake my, I think bread is beautiful and is in so many different ways. And uh, I think that goes for every food that comes out of the earth corn, wheat, soybeans, you know, the fact that we're bastardizing each one of these things and labeling them evil. And I think it's so, it's missing the point. It's overlooking all the qualities of these incredible things from the earth and just kind of dismissing them because well, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Do you do like a gluten-free bread? We don't. Do a lot of people ask for it or no? Yeah. There, there's a lot of people that are asking for gluten-free bread. Yeah. Is there like a standard response from a, a, a staff member at the bakery or is it just no? Look, we're not ideological. We're not radical. You know, we we will evolve in our positions. Uh, right now, we don't do it because we're pretty focused on doing what we're what we're trained to do and what we what we love doing. There may come a time where we find that project interesting and we'll dive into it. And but right now, gluten is gluten is our our bones, you know, it's a structure of, of so much that we build on. And so uh, I, I still, I still love gluten. I think it's incredible. And, and I think this time will pass, you know, we'll move on to another thing. And I think it's really reflective of our time right now, you know, our cancel culture, even of foods, <laughs> even of, of wheat and, and these ideas and, and maybe we'll get beyond it and, and we'll find a more balanced relationship with the food that we eat and, not be so quick to dismiss this or that as categorically unhealthy, mm -hmm. healthy. Mm -hmm. It's much more nuanced. It's much more gray. We live in that gray. I love the gray. I swim in that gray. And, and I'm, I'm holding out in the center there, in the gray zone, yeah. you know. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know if it's a matter of right or wrong, but I think this craft has been around for a long time. And I think I've dedicated my life to preserving this craft. And right now there are discussions, you know, and ideas that are being floated around, but I'm pretty focused on, on what I'm doing. So I think it's very clear in these first few minutes, your love of the craft and the earth and ingredients. Yeah. And it's very clear on your Instagram, which has a beautiful following. It's full of love, love for people, life, bread. Do you enjoy using in that Instagram as a means to express? Yeah. Yeah, I enjoy it. I mean, yeah, I yeah. enjoy it. I enjoy it. <laughs> it's very interesting to me. I mean, how you express it, but also how you communicate, whether it's you or people of social media teams, I don't know, but. No, it's just me. That's yeah. my that's my baby. No one touches really? that. Really? Yeah, every word that goes out there is, is every word, every phrase, every idea. Yeah, that's my voice. I love it. The comments to people, I mean, it's you could spend a lot of time on there. I'm sure people do spend a lot of time on there. Like I was digging way long ago, just reading through what people had to say to you, what you said to them, you know, I, it's, it's, I love it. Yeah, I, I think it's important that I do it, that there's an intimacy, that there's a relationship, that there's a consistency with the photos that I'm choosing to put out, with the story that I'm choosing to tell. I'm narrating this from the very first day. No one's had a, a single uh, piece of that. And, and that way you feel like you're growing with me, you know, and that, I think that's, that's attributed a lot to our successes. They've watched it grow. They've nourished it. It's real. They can see it. They can see the flaws. They can see the beauty. They celebrate when we do well. They, uh, I hope they, they're supportive when we're doing not well, right? It's all there. And it feels, I think, real because it, I mean, by and large it is. Of course, I'm curating this and I'm deciding what goes on and what doesn't, but yeah, man, it's just me. It's, it's my pocket. I pull it out. I take a photo. I put it back in. I try not to let it take too much of my life. You know, I one post in the morning and then I move on for the day. 
because uh, I, I don't want too much of my day to be influenced by me thinking, okay, what do I want them to see, right? There's a real delicate balance with storytelling and sharing and then being present. <laughs> and that, I think having some structure is important. I don't, I don't typically do much in the story world because I find that too imposing in my actual life, right? I'm always out taking videos. It, it, it's not a good feeling personally. And so I limit it to once in the morning and it feels enough, right? Until tomorrow, I'll put it away. Yeah, I like that structure. It's, it's well, if I'm gonna be the one doing it, which I, I think is important, right? So you hear my voice, then uh, I need to have some structure to make sure that it doesn't take over my, my whole day. Because there's been times where I feel like you're looking out always for the next, the next interesting, engaging, clever thing. And it's an obnoxious feeling. I don't want that in my life right. all day. And as you said, you're not present. No, it's bullshit. For that. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 obnoxious way of living. Always thinking about how I can be more clever. Always thinking about, ooh, that would be great. Or asking people to move here to get this lighter. No, it's a, it's not it's not what I want. But I do want to be the one controlling it and be the voice. Um, and so, no, I don't I don't respond to everyone. Every once in a while, I'll respond. You know, because I'm either they've caught my attention. <laughs> or I'm just feeling cheeky or whatever. Uh, so I'll jump in every once in a while. That's cool, I like it. I'm curious what you had for dinner last night, but I, I may turn this into like a, a follow-up segment called last night's dinner. So I may ask some follow-up questions. What did you have for dinner last night? <laughs> so I don't know if this is scandalous or not. So today is Saturday, right? Last night was Friday night. We, uh, me and some friends, we crashed Michael Solomnov's and Andrew Zimmern and Heidi Goldsmith's uh, South Beach Food and Wine Fest dinner at Verde. So uh, we baked their challah for their Shabbat dinner and Zimmern was uh, making a pork shrimp dumpling. You know, traditional Shabbat dinner. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a hell of a dinner. It was a hell of a dinner. Michael had a, a lamb, uh, a delicious lamb uh, roast. And so we just uh, hung out in the kitchen and snacked on everything while they were plating. And, uh, and then we moved on to uh, the Broken Shaker where um, uh, the, the chefs from M25 in Tel Aviv, you've heard of them, Bornstein? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And Lior uh, from... Le Bois. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. Uh, they had a off, I guess, what, what would you call it? Uh, it was like a, it was like a, it wasn't a festival. Event, it was, right? yeah. And here's the beautiful thing about this festival. Now there's like off festival events that are happening because there's just so many chefs in town. So uh, 27 had these guys come in and they just brought out a spread of delicious salatim, like little Israeli salads. And uh, they had this one dish where they, they had ground lamb that was in a pita and then they grilled it all together. You know, they stuff raw ground lamb in the in the pita and just throw that all on the grill and let it cook within the pita. Oof, that was good. And then the night continued. Uh, there was a chef after party that Michael Schwartz put on. So this is like, this is the time to ask what I ate last night. <laughs> I love it. Did you eat at that after party? Yeah, yeah. There's lots of good food there. Uh, was it at Michael's? No, he had it at this warehouse and uh, he used to have it at his house. Oh, really? Yeah. Michael Schwartz used to open up his house and have these after parties during the South Beach Food and Wine and all the chefs would come and hang there. And it's, it's a real scene, man. It's a cool time. I feel like Miami gets to celebrate itself as an emerging food scene and all the chefs come out, you know, and this life is hard, you know, the chef life, whatever part of the journey you're on. So it's nice to let your hair down, and just have a drink and uh, hang with the industry. Awesome, I love it. What was young Zach Stern getting into as a kid in Miami? It's like 10 year old Zach. 10 year old Zach. You're in a softball league right now, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm in a softball league. Were now. you playing, like, are you a baseball guy? Yeah, I, baseball I grew up like a, a pretty typical kind of white privileged Jewish kid. Not not rich, but just, you know, like taken care of, right? My my basic needs were taken care of. I was loved by my parents. I had, I had just about everything I needed, you know? So yeah, baseball, basketball, uh, after school. I had a, yeah, it was a sweet life. It was simple in the suburbs. A little, as I grew up, it was a, a bit boring. I, I wanted more. I was hungry for more. I didn't know exactly what more was, but I... Like at what, like in high school or before? No, high school was pretty dominated with trying to fit in and and just a, a lot of pot. Like that was, when I think about high school, all I think about was just us smoking blunts in the morning 
and being high all day at school and just being static. You know what I mean? Really? Yeah, just being high. Really, like, not, yeah, not were much, you, not much growth. Food? Were you into food in the earth, as you mentioned earlier, at this time? No, no. My influences were pretty typical of like what was around me as a kid. I grew up eating pretty average suburban food, you know? Shorty's barbecue. Shorty's barbecue. Yeah, you know, the stuff that was around chicken kitchen. Yeah. Uh, I'd come home from, from what school. What sauce, curry sauce? The cur yeah, of Brian, course. You know, Brian's obsessed with that. He's like tried to recreate it. Yeah. And he thinks he's almost nailed it. Right, it's just mayonnaise, I think, you know? <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> like, but my palate was, was really standard. It, it, it wasn't sophisticated. I didn't have parents who would take me out to Michelin starred restaurants. I didn't have a family of bakers and craftsmen and artists and none of that culture was there. But I think that might've been what was so interesting for me. You know, I was hungry for something more. And when I saw these alternative uh, ways of living, these alternative professions, you know, beyond the classic suburban uh, archetypes of like doctor, lawyer, uh, wealth, wealthy, everyone just seemed to be wealthy around me. I don't know how they all did it. But once I broke out of that, I was just, I was amazed. What did your parents do? My, my dad was a, he worked at Saks Fifth Avenue. He sold uh, ladies shoes. And my mom was an administrator in an office. So they, I mean, their influence was, I think what, what they, the great thing that they gave me was just stability and love. You yeah. know, they gave me- Important. Yeah, everything I needed to then, it's like what I think real privilege is, like real good privilege. It's like they gave me everything I needed to then go off and do my thing. Did they cook? Did one of them cook? Yeah, my mom cooked a bit, but nothing like uh, what you would imagine of like in a... No big impact or like inspiration to you that you look back on or... Nothing particular. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I've always I've always enjoyed eating, enjoyed food, but no, there was no one in in my world growing up that influenced me. In fact most of who I am is out of rebellion to the way I was raised, I would say, you know? Yeah. I've defined myself by all the things that I'm not growing up. And I think that had a lot to do. I was seeking, I was a hardcore seeker by the time I got out of Miami and then the world just smacked me in the face and it was so exciting. That's amazing. Yeah. What was the first thing you ever cooked? What, like was a loaf of bread one of the first things you made? No. Uh, in college, you know, I had a bunch of college buddies that we all, we would all cook for each other, but it, my skills at the time and my knowledge and what I understood was very limited. You know, I was coming out of my parents' house. I was my parents' kid at that time at 18. And then it was only until I, I really started taking off and traveling and exploring the world that my palate began to expand and, and my ability, uh, you know, paralleled my palate, right? So I would start to taste things and then I would start to replicate it and mimic it. Where did you go to college first? I went to Florida State. In Tallahassee. Knowles. All right. And yeah. then after was that. Was that a deep sigh? What was that? A breath? Did I you said like. Knowles. <laughs> <laughs> well, my roommate was a FSU grad when I lived here in Miami. And then you were going to go to, you enrolled in pharmacy school. Did you start? Yeah, I started. Yeah. I mean, in undergrad, uh, yeah, you got to pick a degree when you're 18. I, I was so, I was such a young guy at 18. That's what happened to me. Why I, not that this was about me, but that's why I left Kansas. I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. Of course you don't. I was, yeah. I was really my parents' kid. Like I was not, I was so undeveloped. I was a, a little embryo, I feel like. And so I chose, uh, I chose pre-med because at the time I was really interested, and this is so immature to admit, it's kind of embarrassing, but I was really interested in, in, in weed. And so I thought, okay, so I'll go to pharmacy school and I'll make it a career, you know, I'll legalize it. And this is what I'm interested in. Uh, and this is before I was, I discovered all these other interests in the world, right? I was, was pretty limited, but I stuck with it and, and I did pretty good. I, I was impressed, you know, I was like, well, Zach, you can do this, man. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that I was able to do well in school. In high school, I just, I put all my energy into doing the bare minimum because uh, I don't know why. I didn't have a lot of energy, didn't have a lot of excitement, but that kind of changed in college and I went through the four years. Uh, I. I applied for schools, I did the entry exams, I got in, I thought that's okay. I was focused and I got it. But once I got into school, it just, I, I was hungry for something more and that appetite was just grumbling inside me. Uh, and so I withdrew after just one semester. When did it hit you? Like during that semester? Yeah, it was, yeah, there was, there was discontent that whole semester and then it just something, 
hit me. I mean, there's some fun stories I think that could kind of explain it. Uh, but I realized a few things. I realized one, this is not, this is not for me. Two, I'm young, man. I need to get out there and I need to go do all the things that I can only do when I'm young, right? I need to travel really far. I need to go on a long bus ride and not have to pee for 12 hours. You know what I mean? Like these are the things that you can do when you're young. I'm curious, I'm hungry. I need to, I need to go, man. I have no responsibilities. I have no girlfriend. I have no money either, but I, so I didn't need a lot. And so I just took off. Still in your rebellion phase. I suppose, yeah. I mean, we, don't, we don't need to psychoanalyze this. But, <laughs> but. Um, so you choose to travel. Yeah, but, but I'm, I'm still hungry. I still want to learn, right? I'm 20, I was 22. I still, I just didn't want to be in the structure of academia anymore. Uh, I wanted to learn all the other things that I wasn't ever learning in school. And uh, I wanted to learn how to be self-sufficient. I want to learn how to cook for myself. I want to learn how to build my own house. I want to learn how to grow my own food, how to make my own clothes. I just felt so inept as a man. And, and that was it. I was like, I'm just going to take off and I'm going to go work on farms and I'm going to learn the basics of life. And where'd you go? First stop was actually a farm in, in Homestead. It's called Bee Heaven Farm, Margie. Okay. Yeah, she had a teepee. She let me live in her teepee. For and how long? I was there for a few months. Uh, and I just picked weeds from her rows of kale. I read, I remember reading Barbara Kingsolver's Animal Vegetable Miracle at the time. That was like my textbook. And it was very romantic in the beginning. And then as time went on, it got, it got more real, right? It first started like I was a visitor in this world. And then it became, no, this is my life. After a few years of doing this, I working on farms, I'm learning a craft, I'm focused. I didn't have a master plan or anything, but I was enjoying myself. Yeah, I felt like I was transforming um, into something. Couldn't tell you what exactly, but. And then you took off to another country? Oh no, and then the wind just kept taking me places. I, I, somehow I landed at uh, the hostel in the forest. You ever heard of the hostel in the forest? No. So it's this uh, uh, eco-geodesic dome treehouse hostel in Southeast Georgia, Brunswick, Georgia. It's deep in the forest. Wow. Yeah, and I was working on their farm and it's, uh, it's a magical place. I learned a lot there. Uh, I didn't learn a thing about farming. It turns out most of the hippies there were just interested in painting the signs for all the crop, but weren't so interested in like the agriculture of it. Interesting. So we had great hand-painted signs of like tomato and carrot, but the, the production was pretty weak. That's funny. But I learned a lot of other things there. I learned a lot, I learned how to hug. I learned how to, um, how to do a sweat lodge. I learned, uh, how to express myself uh, in ways that in the suburbs I didn't see, right? I mean, just, it, it was a transformative time. And I ended up uh, being the manager there first. So I was there a while and uh, had a major impact on me. It's still inside me, that place. Really? Absolutely. So how old were you when you wound up going to, were you Italy, did you? And then there were girls here that would take me there, you know, like life, life was still, I wasn't just like working, I was also living in there, you know, I'd have a girlfriend that took me this way or I was chasing a girl that way or I was breaking up with one this way. So that was always kind of like the, I don't know, these pivot points. And, and uh, somehow I, I think I was, I was running away from one girl one time and my plan was, okay, I just bought a ticket to Sweden and I worked on an on a apple farm there and they had a bakery. And that's when I started focusing on just bread and wine and cheese. I just wanted to find farms that had bread, wine and cheese. And uh, I did that for a, a few years and uh, I, I focused even more than on the bread. Uh, the bread was the most mobile, the most portable craft of all of them. Uh, with the cheese, it was, I loved it. I adored cheese making, but you need to have animals, right? And so it requires land. And then with wine, obviously you need to have a lot of land, but with bread, I can pick that. I can take it in my pocket. You know what I mean? And no matter where I am in the world, I can be making a loaf of bread. Uh, and so that one ended up being the one to kind of conquer all of the crafts. This is probably a loaded question, but what did you learn about yourself on these travels? I don't know if it's loaded, but it's an enormous question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I learned, uh, I, I feel like I learned a lot, man. I learned, I don't know if I could possibly answer that sitting here, but I, it, it was transformative. I learned how to work, right? I learned uh, about rural life. I learned uh, about hard work, man. How to wake up in the morning and do physical labor 
uh, and to go to bed early and to wake up again and do it again. I mean, it's a lot of what my work is now, you know, we wake up every day, we create something from nothing and poof, it's gone. And then we start all over again the next day. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So I, I learned so much that I wasn't able to learn in uh, metropolitan, you know, suburban life of the United States. You mentioned these three things, cheese, wine, and bread. First, I want to know your favorite cheese, your favorite wine, your favorite bread. Mm. And then I want to ask like your favorite combo of sure. the three. It's hard to say like favorites, and, uh, but uh, I could tell you, I, I tend to, to gravitate towards stinky. Yeah, stinky cheese, stinky red wine. Uh, and bread, I mean, fresh, fresh sourdough bread for me uh, is, uh, is the best. You know, there's this magic hour where it's been out of the oven for an hour or two and no toasting, you just crack into it. The, the crust is thin uh, and the crumb is so creamy. All right, so take us, you come back. I, I mean, we could do six episodes about you being abroad probably, but you come back and take us to when you decided to, to do this baking thing. Mm-hmm. Like you, I, I know there's a friend's garage, there's backyards, all this involved, but take us there. So I was working on this farm in Italy uh, and I was pretty stable there. I had a job, they were paying me and I was their baker in this, uh, this Borgo, Borgo Pignano, a magical place in the Tuscan, uh, like you would imagine, like rolling hills. It was, a, it was like a castle um, and it was an agroturismo and I was their baker. And then this, this girl came along that played the fiddle and she just rocked my world. And I ended up running away in the middle of the night with her to go busk and to make cheese on other farms. And as soon as that fizzled, <laughs> of course, that always fizzles. I came back with my tail between my legs to Miami. I had no money left and I was down, you know, I just broke up with this girl. I was, I was feeling kind of dejected and, and uh, I didn't know what to do. I was either, I had two choices in my mind. I was either going to go to Germany and, and become a carpenter, like learn how to be a carpenter. Really? Yeah, there's these Zimmerman programs there that I, that I had my eye on, or I was going to start my own thing. It felt a little premature to start my own thing. I felt like I still had some more to do before I was ready to settle and commit. I was 20, 26. But I looked around, I saw the markets in Miami, the farmer's markets, and I looked around for bakeries and I, I felt like there was room. I felt like uh, there was space for me to do what I wanted to do, which was to just uh, be a traditional baker in Miami, uh, kind of take that that village uh, artisanal craft and bring it to the city. I didn't have a master plan. I didn't have a budget. I'm, I never studied business. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew how to work hard, you know, and put my entire self, I had no wife, I had no girlfriend, I had no kids, no dog, no nothing. I had this craft and I could put my entire self into it. And I knew that I could do that. That's all I knew I could do. I can, I can make good bread every day and I can repeat it the next day. And so that's what I did in the garage of my friend's dad's house, Sandy. He, uh, I asked him, hey man, can I put a, a bakery in your garage? And he said, okay, <laughs> okay, okay, Zach. And uh, man, it was charming as hell. Did you have like a mixer in there? No, man. I, the only thing I had, I got a single deck Blodgett pizza oven, right? Cause those have a stone. That's all I needed was a stone oven. It was a single one. I could put eight loaves per round, per 45 minutes. And I had a Pepsi beverage cooler that I got from a used shop. So my initial investment was $2,000. That was it. Uh, and I had to borrow that <laughs> because I had nothing. I mean, I just came back from traveling. Um, I borrowed $2,000 uh, from my parents and uh, I just got going. And the idea was to bake bread for the farmer's market. So what I'd do is I'd wake up early on the morning of, of the farmer's market, I would bake, so eight breads per hour. You can, I, I think I only had like 50 breads to start and they would come piping hot. I'd take them, put them in the back of my car, drive over there and so quickly. Which market? Uh, Pinecrest Farmer's Market. Okay. It, I mean, it didn't take very long. It was kind of like a They were just gone like. Yeah, and also for this to become a small little thing, you know, people started waiting for the table because I would always be late inevitably, right? It was just me. And then my dad would come and he would set the table up for me. And then a little line would form. And then shit, once you see a line, you know, people are just, they can't they get in the line and 
the line would just get longer and longer and longer. And then it would get to a point where I couldn't bake enough bread for the line. So I would just start apologizing and managing their expectations at the end of the line. Hey guys, listen, I don't think I'm going to have enough bread for you. So don't wait in line. <laughs> and it, it's really, it hasn't stopped since that day. Holy shit. It's just been chasing my tail of supply and demand since then. That's exhausting while well, I'm thinking about it. I'm just exhausted thinking about it. <laughs> how many weeks in or how much time in were you like, you sell out of your bread at the farmer's market on Sunday morning or Saturday morning and you're like, shit, what's the plan? No, 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 no. There was no time to think about what the plan was because I had to wake up the next morning very quickly. I agreed to bake bread for Michelle Bernstein. Yeah, at her. How, how did that happen? You have two of the biggest chefs now wanting to serve your bread, Michael Schwartz and Michelle Bernstein. How did that happen? Well, so Michelle was really the first one and she got connected through someone that I met who heard and I came, I came to a restaurant with a basket of bread. Someone connected us and, and uh, she tried it. She said, that's great. Can you, can you bake every day? And I said, yes, which was, I, I don't know. I just said yes. And I never did it before. I was only baking for the weekend. So all of a sudden now I'm baking seven days a week and that was it. Once that started, it was just it was go time. I was just chasing my tail. Michelle Bernstein serving your bread as you're baking it out of a garage still? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Every day I would, and it was just me in the very beginning, I would mix the dough, right? I would shape the bread. I would let it retard overnight in that Pepsi cooler. I'd wake up early in the morning. I would bake it and then I would pack it and then I would put it in my car, drive it over to Mishi's, Michelle's restaurant. And then I'd come back, wash the dishes, start the mix for the next day and on and on and on. And so very quickly I realized I need help, but I didn't have any money. There was no cash flow. So what I did was I went on the website of the organization that I used to apprentice farmers. And I said, hey, I have a, a bakery and I'm looking for people to come and apprentice and I'll give you room and board if uh, in exchange for work. And that's when I started uh, bringing in apprentices into the house uh, of the garage. And then I'd have these people kind of cycle through and, and help me, an apprentice. Uh, and my roommates agreed in the beginning, but it, it quickly became like I took over. I took over the house. It was uh, because the, we kept making more and more bread and, the, and the, uh, the apprentices would be everywhere in the house, lounging, watching TV, you know, uh, stealing uh, this person's weed and, <laughs> you know, just hanging out or like not washing the dishes. Or, and then the septic tank got... So there were so many people in the house some, that the septic tank got backed up and then there was a mutiny against me. All my roommates who I, I love and adore, these are my good friends still to this day, but it got tense. Really? It got tense and there was dough on all the handles and flour everywhere, you know, track it in from the garage into the house. And I had goats too, cause I had, uh, I, and the idea was I was gonna do bread and cheese, but the goats kept getting out and they would just run, it was just, it was, it was chaos, chaos, man. So were you like, all right, I got to get out of here. Or were they like, no, get out of here. They were like, dude, you got to get out of here. And then at the same time, it was summer. My Pepsi cooler broke down, you know, cause I'm in the garage. There's no AC and I'm just broken. I'm on my knees. You know, I have to deliver. I feel the weight of delivering. I had four accounts at that time that I was delivering to. And I just felt the weight of this new young business. Uh, it was cr crippling. Oh, it was exhausting. And uh, a guy named Kenny Lyon saved me. He let me wow. move into his commissary in Hialeah. He happened to have deck ovens. And overnight, I moved to, to Hialeah. And that's the show kept going on. And it, it's like this beast, you know, especially wholesale, because it's you have to get it early and it never stops and it keeps going, right? And you keep feeding the mother. You can never stop. And it feels like this monster, this beast that you just keep feeding and moving and holding up on your shoulders. Skip, skip, skip. How many loaves of bread did Zach the Baker location bake this morning? Uh, well, actually today, because it's Shabbat, we're closed. Uh, oh, you skipped a lot, man. Yeah. <laughs> you, you skipped so far forward. It's almost unrecognizable. We're going but, back. I just wanted to. But point is, yeah, we bake, we bake a ton of bread now and it's not just me anymore. And I, I, that pressure that I was explaining of startup bootstrap, you know, business, is more spread out amongst a team, right? And so it's still a great amount of responsibility, but uh, thankfully now I have incredible people that I'm working with that I can spread that pressure out evenly where no one's feeling uh, crippled or no one's feeling the, the pressure kind of insurmountable pressure. And so it's more sustainable now.
my point of the question, you went from a garage to, to a commissary in Hialeah to thousands of loaves you're baking, yeah? And croissants and brioche. Yeah. But, I mean, if I can, I, it's just one. It's just one place. You know, I've resisted all of the, the great invitations. Many, yeah, I was going to say. I mean, you must have had plenty of invitations to expand in Miami and probably plenty of other cities. Yeah, a lot of ones are, are just kind of like at a, oh, will you come to Toronto? When are you coming to New York? You know, that's my like uh, typical Jewish New York accent. <laughs> and a lot of them are flattering and they're just, you know, their way of saying like, hey, we really love you. We'd love to have you in our city. But then there's, there's real ones too, right? All over Atlanta, Aventura, Coconut Grove, Dubai, Kazakhstan, Israel, New York, I mean, LA, on and on and on and on. Um, and I entertained it for a while until I realized I don't want another place right now. You know, I'm really happy with having one place, with coming in, seeing everyone on the team, knowing who they are, working side by side, and focusing on getting better instead of bigger, or at least better before we get bigger. And that's a really luxurious place to be because, you know, that crippling early time, I sweat through it. And the return on that investment is we're independent now. I have no investors. I have no partners. It's just me and the team. So we can do whatever we want. And there's nothing forcing us to grow faster or bigger than we want to. So if we want to stay at this size and just focus on getting better, we can do that. And that is the ultimate luxury and I think something that is so worth fighting for as a craftsman business owner because we have one mission and we're laser focused on that mission and nothing's really getting in the way of us achieving it. Do you envision a time when it's just so much bigger or there's more locations or, or you're like, or no? I, I can't, I can't think of a good reason to open up more locations. <laughs> like what, what's a good more money? could be well we're in it's just me like so this is right now this is enough you know it's good right more work more liability more pressure I don't more success more ego more I don't know like why would I want to open up more uh, right now like the answer is no I don't maybe that'll change in the future right uh, maybe the team will get so bored with where we are right now that they're hungry and want to make space for them I don't know but right now it's really nice not growing because once you start growing, a lot of your energy gets focused on the growth and not on what you're doing every day, right? It kind of gets sucked away. And so now all that energy that would be spent on growth and this and that can just be spent on doing what we do, but better. And that's great, man. And not just the, the product. I'm talking about like the work experience too. Yeah. That's important. We're there every day. So uh, right now I, I'm loving I'm loving being independent. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think that is that is what luxury is. Can we touch on your health? Sure. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, at 31, you had suffered a minor stroke. Is that right? Yeah. Looking back, was this pressure of work or the stress of work at a young age, if you will? It, it could be. I mean, it, it's hard to, to, to say uh, uh, conclusively, but the way I understand it, is that this road to get to this luxurious place that I just described yeah. was really hard, right? At holding out, I, having, I understand why people take financers because having money makes it easier along the way. Uh, I think we're stronger because of it, but it, it took a personal toll on me. Meanwhile, I, I just had a new marriage. I just got uh, married. I just had a kid. I was growing the business. It was stressful. And I think it just, I, I crumbled underneath it. And that was my body's way of manifesting like the alarm, Zach, man, be careful. So that's, that's really present, right? That warning sign, uh, that governor inside me to like, hey, only put enough food in your mouth that you can chew elegantly, right? And enjoy the chewing because it, it got overwhelming. Also, we were getting big. It was going so fast uh, and it was hard to kind of hang on. So how's your health today? I feel good now. Good. Yeah. It's still a practice. It, it takes a lot of attention to, to find the balance, uh, to be able to give space for the creative energy at work, that fire, right? 
and then also to give space to the personal needs that I have. And also I, I've created other things besides this bakery. I've, I've created children that need my creative space too. So you have two kids. Yeah, I have two girls. What's the best part of being a dad? What's the best part of being a dad? Yeah. So my, my, I have two girls. I fucking love having girls. They're the sweetest things in the world. I couldn't say what the best part about being a dad is. I just, I could just tell you, I really love that role. I really love being a dad and I love nurturing them. And I love seeing the world through their imaginative eyes. I mean, I feel like they're on acid all day long <laughs> and whatever they imagine feels real. It's so cool. Yeah. And, and to, to re-experience life through their eyes is magical. I can, you bring up my girls, I'll light up in a second. They're, yeah, they're the most beautiful things. They've grounded me, they've kept me balanced. They give me, they give me more purpose beyond just work because work is easy to hide behind, right? We're successful, uh, it's gratifying, people enjoy it, you know what I mean? But family and the, my kids, uh, it's something else, man. Yeah. Social impact, giving back, chefs are extremely generous. We know this. We started talking about this before and you have a very interesting point of view. Let's pick that conversation back up. You started to say you don't, you don't like talking about it. You don't discuss it. You don't think it's something that belongs in the press. I hear you. Yeah, I don't know if it's something that I don't like. To, it's, it's something I would prefer not to, to, to share with with the press. Yeah. It's a personal thing. It's something we do. It's, it's, a, it's a thing I think best done anonymously and best done quietly. And that's just a personal preference. Yeah. Yeah. Can you share some of the stuff you do? Though? Yeah, do nothing mind? secretive. It's yeah. just, it's, it's something that we're uh, deliberately quiet about. So giving back, what does it mean giving back? Uh, one thing that, that's important to us to make sure that uh, no bread is wasted. And so we just, we have relationships with uh, the different food banks in town to make sure that every single day that they all get their turn to come and get um, places like the Lotus House. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's a great uh, rehabilitation center for women. Um, places like Camilla House. Uh, we also, because we're kosher, we have different uh, food banks that come and pick up uh, to the kosher food banks and, and things like that. But uh, I feel like there's other things that we do in giving it one of, one important thing for me, and maybe this is just because of my upbringing of being like a, a secular, liberal, pluralistic, you know, uh, guy in America. Um, those were the influences growing up is the inclusivity of the place. So we are a kosher uh, bakery only because I married a religious girl uh, six years ago and we're in a very non-kosher area. And so we have this opportunity for kind of cultural clashing uh, for people that typically don't, you know, leave the shtetl or, or stay within their world at kosher restaurants to come sit next to people who typically don't get to interact. Uh, and so we have this very inclusive vibe going on at our place. It's an opportunity for people to kind of get beyond their tribe. And perhaps, possibly they do, maybe they don't, I don't know, I'm not looking to force anything, but this is a space where connections can be made right outside of your uh, tribal walls, right? Cultural walls, socioeconomic walls. And the thing about a bakery, it's, it's very accessible, right? You can come in for $3.20 and have an incredible experience with a croissant. That's pretty accessible, I think, especially for like fine craft in Miami and in America. And so you have this opportunity for different tribes, let's call it, right? to be together and to interact together and possibly even make a connection. I, you know, it's up to them. And I think that's something that feels like giving back to the community of creating that space, creating that community space. Uh, it's different than like, you know, to the food banks and to this nonprofit and this, it's, it's a different kind of, of giving, uh, but it's something that's important that's very deliberate yeah. uh, that I really enjoy. That's nice. Do you communicate, convey, instill this at all in your staff? Like they, mu they, they must know the bakery does it, but. No, I mean, like our choice to remain kosher, I'm not, a, I, I'm not kosher, I'm not religious. None of that is really important to me, but what it, being kosher does is it gives us the opportunity to have this uh, mix 
this uh, cultural kind of uh, community yeah. coming together. Uh, the staff, no. Like the giving aspect. No, no, what's, uh, no. They're just, they, once you start working for us long enough, you start to see what's going on, right? And you start to get the vibe. And maybe at first it can be a bit jarring, right? They've never maybe interacted with, with these tribes, let's say. But after a while, if, if you're gonna stay, you gotta buy in, you know, to this idea that, hey, this is what we do. We create this space and uh, yeah, we're, we're not here to, to judge right or wrong. We're here to give a good experience. Yeah, so no, it's not, there's no, there's no communication with the staff. This is just, this is who we are and this is what we do every day. I like that. Let's do a speed round. Okay. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. <sighs> Cinnamon buns, fresh out of the oven. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Fermented something. I don't know what it is, but there's something fermented. What pisses you off in the kitchen? Towels that aren't folded up. Do you know the, the towels like the... Like side towels? Side towels yeah. that are like dirty and not folded up and especially in the eye of, a, of the customer. Like you see it like just piled oh, up. I hate like it. it. Yeah. I'm, I'm always folding towels up. <laughs> uh, what makes you happy in the kitchen? Makes me happy in the kitchen. Uh, joy. Yeah, seeing the team joyful. I believe I read a quote from you that says it's not always easy, but it's satisfying. Does this <laughs> ring a bell? The satisfaction is important to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I could have said that. <laughs> when was the last time you were so excited about something in the kitchen? Oh man, I'm really excited right now. Yeah? Yeah, lately. We, we've been doing a lot of R&D and there's, so there's this thing, like I was talking about growth earlier. The thing about growth is it takes a lot of your energy. Because we've chosen not to grow, we've had more uh, energy available and we've been able to make space for creativity. It's something that we didn't have for for a few years because we were just 200% growth year over year. So that takes a lot of energy. So there wasn't a lot of space for creativity. And because we've deliberately said, okay, pause, now there's space for creativity. And I can see it all the way through the team and it's exciting. When, is this very recent? It, it was, a, no, there was a... I, I discussed it on Instagram also about a year ago where I just kind of made a decision, right? Because I'm, I'm the one in charge here. I told you we have no partners. So then it's up to me to create visibility for the team. Hey, where are we going? Uh, so if I'm not happy with the way things are, then I need, to, I need to be more deliberate and I need to guide my team like, hey, this is, this is our vision for this year. Uh, you guys with me? Okay, let's move. And so it's, uh, it's up to me <laughs> to put it together and to also to co-create the, uh, the, the, the path, right, for how we're gonna execute it. Is there a way that you remain creative or evolve? Like, is there a cutting edge of baking? Like, how do you remain, how, how do you evolve? How or do you evolve as a baker? Yeah, or remain creative. I think just keep continuing to try. Uh, one thing that I enjoy doing is when I am traveling, I'm always visiting other bakeries. And I guess everyone has their way of traveling. They'll get off the plane, right? And they'll have like this or that list or this place or that destination. For me, it's like this bakery, that bakery, this bakery. And going and visiting and seeing what the rest of the world is putting out and, and getting inspired and understanding how that might apply to our world. Also, there's a lot of feedback from the community. I think there's a, there's a real uh, special kind of role as a craftsman in the community to hear what the community is wanting, to then hear what the artisan is wanting, right? And then to hear what the team is wanting, and then to hear what the bottom line of the economics of the business. So you take all these uh, inputs and try to, to boil that down and make the right thing, right? Uh, it's, uh, it's complicated, but they're all important, right? It's important to be responding to what the communities want. We're craftsmen, we're here to serve the community. But I think it's also important that, they, that we have space for us to give them what we think that they, they don't even know. You know what I mean? Because this is our life. We've dedicated our professional life to this craft. There are things that, that we know that may, they may not be familiar with. So it's, uh, it's really our responsibility to make space for that as well. And then the team needs to believe in it, right? Because they're going to be the ones producing it every day. And then it's got to satisfy the economics of the business, right? The, the, the profit, the money is not, it's not the soul of the business, but it's definitely the oxygen. And so if we lose our oxygen, there's, it doesn't matter what the meaning we have in our mission or anything, we'll never be able to reach anything. We're going to be flat. So making sure the oxygen is always flowing through so that we can then be reaching towards something meaningful. Uh, it's critical. That's all I got, man. 
I mean, I have a lot more, but that was freaking great. Sure, man. Um, thank you for taking the time. You're probably up really early. Actually, no, today's my day off, man. We were out late last night. I have a hangover. Yeah. <laughs> you did extremely well for a hangover. Thank you. Thanks for what you do. I think you've kept, like, when I lived in Miami, the dining scene was kind of interesting. Like, Miami, it was cool, like, early 2000s, but what's happened since is like is is madness and i i think what you're doing has contributed your cra- your master craftsmanship has contributed in a huge way and i hear this from chefs like coast to coast mm. who i mean mark rosati the culinary director of shake shack landed in miami and like the first photo he posted was of your shop no shit like saying, i didn't know that <laughs> yeah saying cool. like great to be back in miami yeah, can i mean let me tell you what i think about that what one of the things that i think is so important about this is that miami needs its own culture we've been importing culture from san francisco from new york from la from paris from all over the world but i think what's so important what's happening right now and what we're trying to do on our little piece is to have Miami culture that's born and raised from here. That's right? cool. That's not a second location. Yeah. This is our first. This is a Miami bakery and it feels a Miami bakery from someone who's from Miami, who understands the nuance of Miami and who's staying here, who's not going to open up their this location and their that and you know. I'm there every day, you know, like it's a, it's real. And we need more of that chefs from Miami who understand Miami, who are in the kitchen every day, right? Who are not busy opening up their third and their fourth location, cooking, baking, doing their thing. That's critical. Yeah, man. I agree. I agree. Well, I don't live in Miami, but uh, thank you for all that. I mean, it's it's amazing. And I know you don't like to focus on what you do to give back to the community, but I think how you quietly give back to the community is extremely impactful. So right on, man. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Zach Stern. Find more on him at ZachTheBaker.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at OnCappy's Plate or go to BeyondThePlatePodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you to Sarah McClellan Me for her digital media skills. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Join us this Friday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, made possible with the help of our friends at Deep Eddie Vodka. We're joined one last time by Austin's own Caitlin Smith. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.